And um, also, I did a very unpastor Climberly thing. I put together a handout <laughs> that I intend to actually follow today. Now, will that happen? Probably not, but I'm going to try. I'm going to give it an old college try. Passing around also the congregation at prayer for this week, in case you don't have one of those already. And I'm going to give us a, a start of prayer here, and then we'll jump in. This is actually from the, it's the colic for this upcoming week. This coming Sunday is St. Michael and all angels. So if you're coming from a church that doesn't really celebrate feast days, um, or, or what is a saint and all that, we can talk about that uh, perhaps more in a bit. But St. Michael and all angels is really the one time we get to, we, the one, it is the one time that we actually talk about angels because the whole purpose of the angels is to talk about Jesus. But they do exist. And so St. Michael and all angels, um, you give a little bit of, a couple readings that are um, the, the couple key places where the Bible talks about angels. We hear those readings. Um, and then we hear Pastor Barton's do his best to unfold it uh, in sermon. And I say that because it's always a challenge when you're dealing with with angels, there's only we're limited stuff that we do know, but uh, let us pray. Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted the service of angels and men in a wonderful order. Mercifully grant that as your holy angels always serve and worship you in heaven, so by your appointment they may also help and defend us here on earth. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Um, before I forget, coming up in a couple weeks, um, the, I think next week, Theology on Tap, is that next week or the week after? October, week after next, or two weeks. Um, Theology on Tap, if you're not familiar, we meet in this room on uh, one Thursday a month. And me and Dr. Francisco, who's a um, professor of history and apologetics at Concordia Chicago, is a member here, uh, we'll, we're starting a new book, Luther's Large Catechism. Uh, might be especially interesting to you guys, if you're, especially if you're kind of new to the faith. The small catechism is very basic. If you had a chance to look at it, we've read through a couple of things here and there, but the idea is um, it's the boiled down, it's the Bible boiled down, condensed as much as possible in most primitive form for teaching children. And, um, and really, you, never, you can never outgrow it. Those of you who grew up Lutheran, maybe, and you're kind of like looking at it again, you're like, well, it's like, I forgot about this stuff. Or yeah, it hits you. It, it always, the small catechism in its simplicity never changes, and yet you do. So that as you grow, it hits you in a different way as you go through life. Obviously, when you're in, when you're in seventh and eighth grade, trying to stay awake during some boring pastor's um, confirmation class, perhaps, and you haven't really, you're studying, you're studying about stuff that you haven't really even experienced yet. And then you finally get married and you have children and then you start facing death and job loss and trials and, and life throws some real storms your way maybe. Then you come back and read the catechism again. All of a sudden, all the bells are going off. Like, man, this is so helpful. But it wasn't really, you, never, you couldn't have anticipated the helpfulness in seventh grade. The large catechism was written to instruct um, really t the teachers of the faith and also just mature Christians. That's you. So like what, what the small catechism starts to scratch the surface on, Luther and his large catechism just expounds. So we'll be reading through this one, one chunk at a time at Theology on Tap and then discussing it and applying it to today. And the reason why, you're like, why is, 
There's so many like cool and, and, and like relevant and timely books you can buy today. In fact, there's no end to the, as, as soon as you think you have all the modern literature that's addressing contemporary topics, more get published. So you can't really stay ahead of it. But um, there's a, a recent helpful book that came out that's trying to address, it's called the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, if you've heard of that book. He's addressing like, how do we end up in this like transgender confusion, critical race theory moment? And so many, so many weird philosophical views are overlapping at the same time. And uh, at the, in his conclusion, like he, he spends like, oh, it's like 400 pages, very dense stuff. At the very end, he's trying to give some advice, some direction to the church on how to address some of these issues. And, and one of his main things was return to the foundations and re, like reestablish the, the firm foundations upon which the church is built. So the scriptures... Uh, the creeds, the, the primary tenets of the faith. So actually unfolding the Ten Commandments for our people and, what, and, and why they're helpful, why they're a gift, um, what, what they're freeing us from, what they're freeing us for, toward, um, and who God is and the creed that we'll be talking about today. So that's why we chose this book, um, kind of going, going backwards to the 16th, 16th century as the small catechism was as well. So today, the creeds, if you got your hand out there, and hopefully we'll open the, the catechism a little bit later. Um, let's see. You've got your hymnal in front of you. Look at, Lee, did you put these, did you put the hymnals out too? I put some of right. <laughs> I, mean, I forgot about that one. If you want to open in your, uh, in your hymnal to page uh, 155, Divine Service 1. One of our main services. We begin uh, in the, the Lord's name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He has put upon us in holy baptism, promised to be with us always. But what's that? 155, 151, sorry, 151. He put His name upon us in holy baptism, His name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the divine Trinity. We're going to unfold what those what each of those persons of the Trinity is. So we confess our sins to the Lord. We hear the Lord's word read. Um, and then we flip over to 158. We hear the, the hymn of the day, which is always, um, it sometimes can be an obscure hymn. If you're, if you're like a lifelong Lutheran, let's say, and you're coming to Bethany, like what we try to do, and this is just pastoral practice 101, um, you start with a familiar hymn because you want people starting kind of like comfortable. And then you end with a, a really familiar hymn because you want them walking out the door toward you in a good mood. And in the middle of the sandwich, you put really obscure things that they don't really know very well or it's not as familiar to the church. Kind of, what is, what is this? It's hard to sing maybe sometimes. <laughs> uh, but usually, the, so the hymn of the day is, is a, like an, it's an, an appointed hymn. So, Certain hymns, um, just as the, the lectionary we talked about last week, the readings, the readings were appointed for certain Sundays. In the same way that the church corporate has said, based on the readings of the day, this hymn, it matches really, really well with the theme of the day. So like last Sunday, um, there was, uh, if you're able to be in church, um, the rich man and Lazarus, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, rich man in hell, Lazarus in heaven. Lazarus, after he dies, is taken to Abram's bosom. 
so heaven. And um, in that hymn, Lord, thee I love with all my heart, you get that stanza three of Lord, thee I love as to Abram's bosom, bear me home that I may die unfearing and in thy narrow chamber keep my body safe and peaceful. So it means a classic Lutheran chorale, but it matches perfectly with the theme of the day. But it's not that familiar of a hymn. So anyway, the, so the hymn of the day, if you're ever wondering, that's kind of a weird one. If you don't know how to sing, you don't like love singing, um, it's okay, make a joyful noise. We have great acoustics, so you're, 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 uh, voice will be covered up by other voices anyway. Um, but but uh, if, you get, if you just throw in the towel, read the text, because the, the intent of, the, of Lutheran hymnody is for the text to actually teach. Um, and a part of Luther, Luther's brilliance at the time of the Reformation was that he, he taught the hymns, he taught the faith to kids by song, and they sent them home singing. And so that the parents were, were getting the gospel in the home through song. The Lutheran church has historically been known as the singing church. Um, and this is kind of, a, kind of a, a weird story. If you think back to like Reformation era, what started to happen is songs, the, the church, the only existing church of the day, song singing was often like put in the mouth of the pastor by way of chanting certain things or put in the loft for the choir. But the people were more of just like there. And so they weren't, they weren't as much participating in the singing of the service. And so they weren't like embracing the richness of the hymnody, which is, that was one big shift of the Reformation is putting the, putting the songs on the lips of the people so they're singing them. And so Lutherans were really, uh, we call them, they, they were called the singing church early on. And then they started to lose that tradition for a variety of reasons. One of the main ones, for those of you who grew up, you probably grew up on the old TLH, the, like the navy blue old school hymnal. So, so picture like gruff American farming men. We're hardworking men. And they come to church and they set, the, they set all the tunes to this hymnal like a pitch, like a step higher than they should, than what is comfortable. Like have you ever been, uh, if you ever tried singing happy birthday and someone starts on the wrong note, a bit, a bit high, like what they think is comfortable, but it's like, Happy birthday. You're like, oh, so we start off pretty high there. And you get to the happy, <laughs> I'm not that good at singing this early in the morning. So think about men who might already be unfortunately slow to rejoice in singing. And then we take hymns and we make it very difficult for men's voices to sing. And then we take our sanctuaries and we cover them in carpet, which kills sound. And then we get organists who are not typically well-trained playing very slowly it's just a, it's a recipe for disaster. And so what happened? Lutherans just stopped singing. And there was, and the other churches started being more, more familiar uh, singing. But anyway, that's why a lot of the hymns that you'll find us singing here are not, are not necessarily new. They might be unfamiliar to you and seem new, but usually the Reformation, um, going all the way back to the, I think the oldest hymn we sing is from the second century, 150, Shepherd of Tender Youth. da 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 Ancient, ancient hymn. Um, so we, the idea is we snag, we want to sing hymns that are timeless. They've survived the test of time. And when you sing something, like if you sing a, a Christian hymn, if you grew up in a certain church body, you can like, when you hear a song from the 80s, you can just, you know right away, that's dripping with the 80s. 
It's, it's bound to a time and then it's like, it's like dead for that reason. So great hymns, truly great hymns, even ones that are written yesterday, survive the test of time. They can be sung really whenever and not be bound to a particular era of, of music. So anyway, after the hymn of the day, um, which we stand to sing, uh, one more note on that, Cantor Sweat. So when, when, he, when he first started here, he's like, you know what, people sing better when they're standing. I'm like, yeah, but people are happy when they're sitting. <laughs> it's like, but we want them to sing. They're, they're going to be sitting for the whole sermon. They can stand for a couple more minutes. So I'm like, all right, good point. So I lost that battle. So if you're one of those people who tries to sit down for the hymn of the day and you realize you're still standing, well, I tried. Uh, I was wondering if it was just me that I like wasn't, you know. It's, a, it's new. It's very new. In fact, it was probably for you guys, you probably started coming here right when Kenner Sweat was starting, I think. Right before he came? Yeah, so I think we like... So we'd always sat down for the hymn of the day. It was always like creed and then sit for the hymn of the day and then remain seated. But it's a good point. I mean, you really do, like, when you're sitting down and trying to sing, you don't get as, as good, like, support, diaphragm support, right? So it's, it's, better, to, it's better for singing to stand up. Um, so trying to, trying to extol good congregational singing by standing, it also makes you all the more comfortable for the sermon. <laughs> Ah, oh, finally, the sermon. Oh, wait, what did I just say? <laughs> uh, so then, you, so we, you can either do it before or after. Sometimes we actually, um, we put the creed before the sermon. I think it transitions us better from the gospel reading, creed, hymn of the day, sermon. And then after the sermon, just practically for us, we like to have the, uh, we go from the sermon into the prayers of the, prayers of the day. But the creed unfolds the um, the faith that the Lord is, has baptized us into, the faith. So it's not like your faith. We always talk about my faith. My faith is, my faith is, is floundering or I've, I'm worried about my weak faith right now. So uh, the Lord is ripping our eyes off of ourselves and putting us on him. It is, it is his faith, the faith, the Christian faith. It's been around long, long before you. And so our faith kind of like might waver. And so the Lord's like, oh, it's okay. Just stick with it. I know what I'm doing. It's the Lord's faith. We were just given to confess it. So um, I think on your handout there, deeds, not creeds. I'll, I'll, I'll try to stick Number with the one. theme here. What's that? Number one. Number one, deeds, not creeds. Um, have you heard that saying, I believe in deeds and not creeds? Have you heard anybody say that before? It's catchy. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's typically, um, do you ever hear that over in, no? Did you ever confess the creed over there? No? <laughs> well, the, if someone said, I believe in deeds and not creeds, what would you think that they're saying? Good works versus faith. No, I mean, I don't think that they would say that. They certainly would. My actions, not my mottos. Yeah, because why, why, why would I repeat dead slogans that, that my, heart, my heart isn't in? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you my life. I'm going to show you my faith with my life, with my actions, right? So I don't want to get... I'm going to get trapped in some staunchy man-made dead creed, but rather my, I want my faith to be alive, right? So um, the concept of deeds and not creeds is problematic because it assumes that I, that I can have like, that, I, that my faith is something that I can detach from any kind of like history of the church for one, but also it's that I can go about my life and actually do good works toward my neighbor, true good works in the perspective of God, without any kind of starting point in faith. So the thing is, without Jesus, all of your 
And my perfect works are filthy rags. They're worthless because I'm a sinner. Remember a couple weeks ago, the tree? I'm a dirty tree. I'm a rotten tree. And therefore, all my fruit is rotten. Even the, the fruit that I think is very good, even the fruit that I think is good according to the law, the Ten Commandments. So look, I love my neighbor as myself. I helped old lady across the street. Whatever the thing is that I did, I gave away all my stuff. But without faith, the tree is dead. The works are bad. doesn't matter. And it works in reverse. This is, here's the best part for the Christian. This is... Um, the sheep and the goats on the last day when the, when, the, when the sheep are standing before Jesus. And he says, hey, when I, was, when I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was sick, you helped me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And they said, when did we do that? He said, oh, you did it. Come on in, right? Come, in, come into the kingdom. And all the guys, all the goats who are sent to hell, they're like, when do we not do these things? My whole life is full of all these, doing these great things. The thing is, any good work outside of Christ is bad. And in Christ, everything that we do is good. Because he gives us all of his goodness and he takes all of our bad. This is the great exchange of the cross. So that on the last day we stand before Jesus like in this fear because we know our sin. We're like, ah, my pockets are empty of, of any good works. They're only full of bad works. I got nothing to show for myself. If, if I'm getting in on my own, I'm not getting in. And Jesus said, you, your, your pockets are overflowing because I filled them up for you. But if you stand before Jesus on your own merits, you don't have enough. You're not going to have what it takes. So Jesus makes our deeds good. Now, so that even that, that concept of good works flows out of faith, rightly understood. So if my faith isn't rightly confessed, then my deeds are kind of like out of whack as well. So deeds and creeds kind of go together. My life of faith flows out of the faith that I believe. So what is, number two, what is a creed? Dragu, when you, did you guys, did you ever say anything? Did you say no creeds, huh? Uh, yeah, no, we just sang like, um, kind of like the, like hill song type songs. Like the four minute ones. But you never confessed the faith? No. <laughs> oh, man. That's too bad. Well, welcome to the gospel, my friend. <laughs> this comes from Latin credo, which means I believe. Pretty simple. And the, so the creed, the, what are the first two words of the creed? I believe. I believe, which is why it's called a creed. So in Latin, if you're confessing the creed, it starts off with credo. So all, your, all creed is is a statement of what I believe. So if a person were to say, I believe that we should not have creeds, what have they just given you? Creed. Their creed. So like everyone has a creed by, by just necessarily, even if you don't believe, if I believe there is no God, I have a creed. The question is, what is your creed? What do you believe, Right. So uh, a creed is simply a statement of faith of, of ultimately what it is that I believe. Why have a creed? Um, there is a, uh, I meant to find this picture, I couldn't find it. There is a, there's a picture from like the 18th, 19th century, 1800s in Japan of like this, um, it's, it's, if you look at the picture, it's like a picture of Mary and she's holding what seems to be a baby Buddha. So it's like this Eastern religion mixed with like Christianity. 
As you look at it, it looks like Roman Catholic artwork from like the Middle Ages in Japan. How does that happen? How do you end up with Buddha? And I forget, there's like these other like weird imagery going on on the outside. So how, this, what happened in Japan, as you look at the history, they were like, the, the church was very short-lived and quickly persecuted, and they didn't have time to actually establish any, get any, like, cre- any, any creeds written down, any kind of documentation. And so the, the Christians all went into hiding, and Christianity was only passed by word of mouth without any kind of strong foundation to start. And what ended up happening was mythology kind of worked its way in, and over about a century, you end up with this weird quasi-Christian Buddhist-infused thing. The creeds help protect us from that. So the creeds go back to the, I guess, three, I'll say, the scriptures. And next week, we're going to look at the, what is argued to be the first creed in the New Testament, I think Philippians, that gives us this well-ordered treatise on Jesus becoming flesh, dying, sending into heaven. Philippians 2, I believe. I think Philippians 2, 5. Anyway, we'll look at it next week. And the idea is repeating the faith, repeating the basics of the faith for the purpose of teaching it. And even the faith that I don't know. So do you, do you really understand? Oh, this is great. Like this happened to me a couple days ago when my, when my lovely Annabelle, six years old, so... Those of you with kids around that age, you're like, they're always asking like the hardest questions to answer. And it's always we don't have time to answer them. So she asks, I don't, I don't understand. So Jesus is God, and yet he prayed to God on the cross. So is he God or is he not God? I'm like, oh, it's 8.30, I go to bed. <laughs> That's right. I'm trying to, and it kind of, that, it's not like you understand any better. We don't understand the Trinity. So three, so three persons, one God. What, is it, what does that mean? So three gods? No, three different three faces. What's that? Someone once said to me, it's like ice, water, and gas. It's the same thing. The elements just different. And, and, that's, and that's not a bad way to go about it. But what ends up happening is, that's, um, um, I believe it's called... Yeah, yeah. So that was a heresy that was condemned in, I think, the fourth century. Monophysitism, I think it was. Or Sabellianism. I can't remember. I had to memorize all these in church history one, but it's been too many years. So every attempt, every attempt to bring our reason to kind of like make it work, it falls apart. Because in that analogy, you've got one God that manifests itself in three different ways. So when the ice is water, when the water is ice, it's no longer water or gas. It can't be all three at once. It can't be all three at once. That's and that's, that's where like the, the triangle kind of breaks down. The triangle might be one of the best at trying to teach it. And all of these are just trying, we're trying to teach a thing that does not make sense. One plus one plus one equals three, not one. So, but the triangle is ultimately one, with three different corners, and yet those corners are, are connected. It's kind of, it's all one triangle, right? So that's not really the way the Trinity is, is put forth. So as we try to wrap our mind around these things, knowing that we can't, we don't say, I, I fully understand one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but we simply, we're given the confession, we, we confess it. I, I believe, I believe this about God. Why? Because he's 
told me this about himself. I don't understand it, but that's okay. I know that he loves me. He's not leading me astray. So I'm just confessing back to him. In fact, that's what confess in the Greek. The word Greece is Latin credo. The Greek is homo legeo, homo lagos. Same homo lagos word. To confess is to say back to God what he's already said about himself. Or what he said to us, like in confession and absolution, he says, you're a sinner. And we say, I am a sinner. He says, I forgive you. You say, amen, you forgive me. We're simply saying back to God what he's already said to us. That's confession. Same here. So he's revealed himself to us as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then what started to happen, unfortunately, I mean, it's, it's not hard to picture in our heads how this happened. Like Christianity kind of starts spreading all over the place. Not everybody's got the Bible. In fact, what we know to be the New Testament wasn't written for a while. So you have churches popping up and they're, they're reading, oh, you know what? The church down the street, Trinity Lyle, has a copy of Paul's letter to Rome. So we go get this letter to Rome and we read Romans. And that, so that's how like a lot of the New Testament is ultimately letters from Paul to individual congregations. And then you got the testimony of the evangelists, right, in the, in the Gospels. But that wasn't like, they didn't have a Bible, like a, a paper-bound thing. So it's, you, you, what starts to happen is, as pastors, individual pastors and individual congregations are teaching this, you get some weird ideas start to creep in. And so... Generally speaking, everybody believed the same stuff because there, was, there were bishops, there were like supervising churches over, or supervising pastors over a variety of churches, kind of making sure we're all on the same page here. Here's, here's how we're interpreting these texts. Here's what we believe about Jesus. And what, uh, finally, what was starting to happen is uh, the, the big one, the history, is, uh, the history recognizes is called Arianism. Have you heard of Arians? Um, these, are, these are your modern day Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so it's still a heresy that's alive and well today, but it's the idea that Jesus is not God. At least he's, he's certainly not equal to the Father. He was the first created being of the Father, and therefore he's better than you and me. He's like Superman, but he's not God the Father. <coughs> is that a problem? Yeah. Why is it a problem? They're co-equal. So, but... Are we saying that they're co-equal because we've always said that they're co-equal? Or is it, what is at stake with Jesus not being fully God? So why would his fully Godness have anything to do with our forgiveness? <coughs> so his death, lots of people died on crosses, including the two thieves next to him on Good Friday, right? So for him to die on the cross was a great thing, a noble sacrifice. But since when does a human's death pay for the sins of everybody else of all times and all places? And more so, it's not just his death, but he suffered eternal wrath. He suffered hell on the cross. So it wasn't just that he died. It's that he was forsaken by God. Right? Eli, Eli, Laba Sabachthani on Good Friday, the classic reading, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hell, to have God turn his back on you. He suffers hell in our place in three hours, but not just mine, but yours and all of creation, right? all, all of humanity since the beginning of time to the end of time. Only God is able to do that. Only, only his death would atone for that. So 
if he's not fully God, he's just a man, then my sin is actually not fully paid for. And that's a problem for me. That means I'm still left with something to do. See? Hence, the, that's why it starts to matter. Like when you read uh, some of the nuances within the creed that hopefully we get to, <laughs> uh, it's like, wh- why are we getting hung up on some of this language here? Because ultimately salvation is at stake. Also, it's important that Jesus is true man. If he's not true man, then he can't die in the same way that I die. That's all next week. We'll talk about Jesus next week. Today, let's finish getting into the, the creed in general, and then we're going to get to the first article as my, as my goal. So, the, so heresy, the heresy of Arianism popped up in uh, like the 300s, 200s, 300s, and it starts spreading. And so there's a church council, the Council of Nicaea, uh, 325, I believe it was. So bishops, of, so like a pastor who's over a lot of churches, they all come together in a giant council and they say, okay, um, here's what we're teaching over here in Galatia. Here's what we're teaching over in Ephesus. We've been teaching it this way for 200 years. My grandfather taught it this way. Here's what we, and okay, that's the same thing we're teaching. And then you guys, who about you guys over there in Rome? What are you talking? So they kind of get together and they say, all of us are teaching this same way. And so teaching this is what we're gonna say is what it means to be a Christian. You can believe other stuff, but you're not a Christian. And the Bible worked the same way. We're holding these books to be canonical. That is, we hold Matthew in a high regard. Um, The Gospel of Thomas, yeah, we haven't even heard of that over in Galatia. The Gospel of Mary, these things that pop up later, uh, obviously imposter texts that that are inconsistent with the teachings of the Gospel. They're they're like, we've never heard of this. We We don't hold it to be authoritative. So what ends up happening is the church, they don't declare what is and what is not the Bible. All these guys were doing was saying, my churches have not recognized these books as authoritative. Have your guys? No. Have your guys? No. So no one's recognizing these books as authoritative. So that's how they, that's how they kind of came up with the, the canon. And even within the canon, there was, a, there was a weight given to certain books. Like for the Roman Catholics would be like what's known as the Apocrypha. Luther quotes the Apocrypha almost more than the scriptures. Um, when you go back and dig into his, I did a paper on this in college. There's no reason I know this, but like, he, he was never quoting it as an authority over the scriptures. It's always by way of wisdom, which is the same way that the history of the church held it, except for when you get into like um, the proof text for um, where do you go when you die and you have a lot of sin you got to pay for? Purgatory. Purgatory comes out of the Apocrypha, right? So, but so the, the, the history of the church has always weighted these books in a way that like Hebrews, for example, who are Hebrews? No, it was a letter to the Hebrew, the church, the Hebrew church or whatever, but like, it's, we don't know who wrote it. And so it's not given the same credibility as the stuff that we know is written by Paul. Most of historians would, would argue that it's written by Paul. It seems to be a lot of consistency with him, but we don't know. It's like we know Luke is from Luke, Matthew's from Matthew and so forth, but we don't know exactly where Hebrews. Revelation, the book of Revelation has a lot of confusing stuff in it. So it's like, it's held to be, we recognize this from John, we recognize that it's the scriptures, but we're not going to let anything that's in Revelation undo the certainty that we have in Romans or Galatians or Matthew. So now we're reading, we're reading the unclear books by what we know in the clear books. James, James is a classic one. He seems to say everything opposite of what Paul says in Romans. So the church has said, yeah, James is kind of like, eh. Luther called it the epistle of straw. 
So you're thinking of it include, so you're, 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 cause you're thinking of the Bible as a group of guys got together and like put it all together and said, we're gonna, we're gonna determine what is in the Bible and what is not. The way the canon was established was here's the books that we deem to be authoritative for the church. Some are less helpful than others, but these are, we would say, to be the word of God. And so we're gonna take the clear text to help us understand the unclear text. So the classic one in James would be like, show me, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works, right? Which that's fine, but it's completely opposite of what Paul's saying in Romans. And yet Paul's also holding the case for works. It just has to be in its proper place. So you can, you, like James even can be understood that I can't, have, I can't have good works without faith, but it's also trying to exhort you as Christians and me to say, you should be doing good works. If you're a living tree, you should be bearing good fruit, right? So it has its place to be sure, but it's not gonna, it's like, if I, if I try to take James apart from Romans or Matthew, I can kind of lead astray. Anyway, so... That, Well, this is why what, we, what you have in front of you, like the ESV, all the popular translations, NIV and so forth, um, where Luther is accused of taking books out of the Bible, right? That's, the, that's the, often the accusation given to Luther by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, all he did was he took the Apocrypha out, which the Apocrypha wasn't always recognized as, author, as authoritative because it was confusing. Um, but it's still, rec- it's still used. In fact, you can go to, Concordia Publishing House, the Lutheran Publishing House, and buy an Apocrypha. But like my dad, I always remember like a couple of years ago, he's like, oh yeah, I saw CPH has an, has an Apocrypha. Should I get it? And I said, dad, who wrote the book of Galatians? Uh, hold on, I'll get it. Dad, when you feel like you know Galatians well, then read the Apocrypha. So it's never meant to trumpet. It's never like more important. It's still a helpful book. Same, same can be said about like a lot of the first century, first, second century, the fathers, Irenaeus, St. Augustine, like there's a lot of really, really good stuff out there. I, but I never want to have that trump the Bible. And that's really what Luther was going after at the time of the Reformation. It was like where we're, we're taking the, the words of, the, of humans over against the scriptures. So the early council, this council of Nicaea was getting together and saying, look, there's these weird teachings that Jesus is not true God, but he's a created being of God. Okay, fine. If you're going to be part of the Christian church, this is what we believe. So we, they, they get down, they hammer out the Nicene Creed. It was finally finished in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. And now we've got the, what we know is today as the Nicene Creed, because it was put, started at the Council of Nicaea, finished at the Council of Constantinople. And it's been said, it's been confessed by the church for 1,500 years. Because this is what the church is saying, this is what we're all we're all in agreement here on what Christianity is. If you don't want to believe this, that's okay, but you're cutting yourself off from Christianity. Um, so uh, there's this church over by Costco, World Mission Society. Have you ever run into those guys? They kind of go door to door. They smell like Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, they, were, they were trying to come down my street a couple years back, and I had my kids with me. So, and they, they asked me if I wanted to learn about more of God's truths. And I look at Mandy, I was like, can I play? <laughs> so I said the girls with her and I stayed there pretending like I didn't know what I was talking about <laughs> for, they, they eventually sniffed me out but uh, they're like what do you do <laughs> how do you know 
they're, it's because they're telling me God is father and mother. And I said, that's interesting. Like, how did you come to that conclusion? Like, where, where do you get that idea? And um, ultimately, I, I kind of returned to the creeds on this. I said, the, the, so the Christian church has always confessed God as father. It's okay for you to say God is mother, but you're no longer a Christian. Oh, no, we're Christian. Well, no, you're not. You can call yourself a Christian, I suppose, but you're not a Christian according to the way the church has said it for the 1,500 years. So that's the idea. So we're confessing the Christian faith, often over against what we even understand, right? So a lot of what we're going to get into, especially in the second and third article of the Creed, in the Nicene Creed, it's, it's a perhaps more complex, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Like, how do we wrap our minds around that? Well, like, we'll, we'll come back to that next week with Jesus. Stay on, stay on track, Pastor. Uh, which creeds? Number four. So the, so the Christian church historically has recognized three big ones. We talked about this last week. Um, the Apostles' Creed, which is one in the catechism, because ultimately the catechism is toward holy baptism. And our experience is usually towards communion because we've kind of messed the whole things up. But usually, um, if I'm catechizing someone into the faith, it's usually toward baptism. And um, the Apostles' Creed is said at baptisms, um, usually confessed, do you believe in God the Father? Yes, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. That's the Apostles' Creed. And it's the most basic. The Nicene Creed is a bit more complicated, and it's, 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 trying, it's fixated more on that, that false teaching with Arianism from the fourth, third and fourth centuries that I mentioned earlier. It spends a lot of time on that, fleshing that out. So, um, and a little bit more also about the Holy Spirit as well. So the, um, that's the Nicene, the, so the Apostles' Creed is a bit more basic. The Nicene Creed, the church has usually said with the Lord's Supper, whenever the Eucharist is being, is being received. So in our circles, we, we, we fancy the Lord's Supper around here. So we're usually only saying the Nicene Creed. In fact, we, to this morning, we just started a weekly, a midweek divine service. So every Wednesday morning at 11.15, I know none of you guys are free, but if you were, at 11.15, it's relatively short, like a 30-minute short divine service. Um, and we actually say the Apostles' Creed. And, and I had to fight with Pastor Bartons on that for a while to finally... <laughs> so look, dude, we never get to say the Apostles' Creed. Can we just... Okay, fine. Uh, but So there was a freedom, obviously, but the history of the church has has usually put Nicene, because the Nicene is a little bit more mature um, for a little bit more mature Christians who have thought through this a, little, a, bit, a bit more, which is usually who you're, who you're communing. And then uh, many churches on once a year on Trinity Sunday say the, the Athanasian Creed, which is, I mean, I think it's actually more, more hurtful than helpful if it's not if it's not carefully expounded. Because you have this weird, like, if you don't believe this, you're damned. Uh, this is, and so this is the Catholic faith. If you don't believe this, you're damned. And so obviously, like Catholic, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic, I think I showed this the first week. Catholic comes from the Greek. According to the whole thing. So there's one whole Christian church. So what we're saying is, as a Christian, all Christians who call themselves Christians confess the creeds. I believe one holy Catholic church. Unfortunately, in your little footnote, you can see like on your, 
like on 158 and 159, you get the little tiny, at the bottom of the creed, you get the tiny like three-point font that says, the ancient text reads Catholic, meaning the whole. Uh, so, to, I mean, I, I prefer actually saying the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, like, because it is one whole church. But it, really what we're saying is one, it's one whole Christian church on, on earth. So don't be scared of that. But anyway, in the, in the Athanasian Creed, it says, this is the Catholic faith. That is the one, the one faith. As a, and if you don't believe this, there is damnation. But then that gets, it says some other kind of potentially confusing things. So, uh, and it's very long and people are standing for the whole thing. And you, by the halfway through, you start falling asleep. So uh, we, only, we only break it out once a year. Some churches don't even say it anymore. They just kind of bring it to Bible study and talk about it there. Because it is kind of a, a doctrinal a doctrinal work that's used to defend against false teachings. Um, and speaking of defending against false teaching, I mean, those are the creeds that were, they end up being a, a pretty clear confession of what the faith, of what the Christian faith is. But keep in mind that they're not, they're not necessarily trying to be a comprehensive confession, like every, absolutely everything, because that's ultimately the Bible, right? But it's, Generally, what Christians are saying, especially in contrast to the false teaching of the day, because remember Arianism I mentioned earlier was a, was a big problem, and so they write the, the Nicene Creed trying to make clear the distinction between, or, or the unity between the persons of the Trinity, right? If you fast forward, like to the time of the Reformation, if you're like both uh, the large catechism, the small catechism, and uh, if you've heard of the Book of Concord, if you, have, if you run into that book yet, uh, the Book of Concord is an is a assembly of different works that are put together by Lutherans in, in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, applying <coughs> the same biblical truths to the heresies of those days, like... Obviously, for the, from the Lutheran perspective, the, the error, correcting the errors within Roman Catholicism would be the Augsburg Confession. And then the, the Catholics gave their response, their rebuttal to the Lutheran accusations. And then the Lutherans gave the defense of their accusation called the apology to the Augsburg Confession. And so the Lutherans are all saying, all right, um, so this is what we believe in, about the gospel in contrast to what is being taught of the Roman Catholic Church. So... Do you guys believe this too? Oh, so we're on the same page. We're in, we're in fellowship with each other. So we're Lutheran. So to be Lutheran in that sense for us, we're confessional, we're confessional Lutherans, which means our unity with one another is bound up into this text of we, we're saying, we're interpreting scriptures in the same way, especially regarding these documents. So as you guys are reading through the small catechism here, this is one of our confessional texts that says, this is what the Lord's Supper is. This is what baptism is. This is what baptism is not. This is what, um, the, this is what salvation is, what salvation is not. So we maybe talk more about the confessions at a later time. Um, so there's the three main creeds. And uh, yeah. I have a question. Uh, I'm, I am a uh, Episcopalian by 50 years, okay? Uh, recently there's been changes in some of the prayers where instead of using pronouns like him, they'll not, not say that, they'll say God instead. Taking away the father figure that would be present in the pronoun him and just using God. Do you have a comment about that? Uh, to me it seems like it's a twist. 
because it is. <laughs> but so so um, maybe to, to put it too simply, like the scriptures reveal God in his, as, as father, in his, his maleness, right? And Jesus revealed as a male. And really, everything that we understand about family flows from that. So the problem with the Episcopalian view is, for one, the Bible itself can't be trusted as the authoritative word of God, which is why they're big on all, like all the social issues. They're willing to depart from the scriptures on that because the Bible is not God's word. It contains God's word, right? So they're willing to, they're, as they look at the scriptures, they kind of say, these things might have been true 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, but they're certainly not true today. We're going to reinterpret these things according to the zeitgeist of the times, right? So if love, usually love is the trump factor for all things. So if it's loving, we're loving. God is love, right? So um, it's loving to let a person marry whoever they want to marry, Oh yeah, but the Bible, the Bible actually gives marriage as a, as a specific thing for a specific purpose. Yeah, but that doesn't sound loving to today's culture and we want to be loving. And so we'll take out, we'll change and reinterpret anything in the Bible that doesn't seem loving for our context. So in, a, in an age ripped with feminism, and to be sure, a lot of families where fathers have failed in their given vocation as fathers and animosity against men from being um, unhelpful men, so you have this like overreaction against that. So the picture that the scriptures give of both fatherhood and husband is one of uh, gift and protection. So father who provides for the child, who takes care of the child, um, provides for the family, loves the family so much, and then would even sacrifice himself for God so loved the world. He gives his son. This has a husband also seeing his role as Christ to his wife, not as God. What's that? Ephesians 5, if you want to run to that, that's, uh, that's, the, usually that's the famous wedding text. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We always had our time with us. What's that? We always had our time with us. Well, so... Well, it, so the problem, here, here's why. And I don't think we should shy away from it. The, the, role of, the role of husband to be Christ, to, to, to give himself up for the wife. So husband, so wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So, so, so look, it, these two pieces go together. When a husband is giving himself up for his wife, um, that is putting her before himself, to, to holding her honor above all things. Um, so not just doing whatever she wants, but obviously manifesting his love for her as the most important thing to him. All of a sudden, it changes the way she looks at him. So think about how, marriage, how marriages start to click together better when, when you, instead of two people pulling in different directions, the husband's actually pulling in one way to love his wife, giving himself up for her in the same way that Christ loves the church. That's an easy person to get behind because ultimately he's doing everything for me anyway, right? 
But it's when that formula gets out of whack that now you've got oppressive husband who's failing in his vocation that's maybe for, even abusing the scripture, saying you need to submit to me for the sake of Muslim. If you want to be Muslim, go be Muslim. That's, that's, that's that approach. Submit out of the sake of the law. The Lord has this submission only by way of love. In the same way that we submit to God, it's like he's only looking out for what's best for me because he loves me and gives himself up for me. So when, when earthly fathers and earthly husbands fail in their vocations, that doesn't mean we redefine God. It just shows us our failures. So earthly fathers are always looking to him for what fathers should be. And so then we have a picture of the earthly family as the, as the bedrock of our society, but really every, so God, this, the marriage within the family is husband loving, him, loving his wife, giving himself up for the wife. We have this, the church on earth being described as the bride of Christ, which means he's the husband who gives himself up for the bride, right? So the masculinity of God is quite clear, and it's not for the sake of holding on to the masculinity of God. It's because actually everything that we hold so dear in our families flows out of that. How a husband's supposed to love his wife comes from how Christ loves the church. How a father is supposed to provide for and love the family comes from what we know about God as father. So it's not that we have our working definitions of father and we're trying to push it back onto him, which is more of what's happening today. We look at our, our society and we want to redefine God according to what we find in the average household. And are we surprised that everything's kind of blowing up in our face? Families are falling apart, right? I mean, it's not, obviously there's, there's, there's all kinds of problems that go into the, the networks of our families, but when you pull dad out of the family, that's when obviously lots of problems, with, I mean, statistically even, right? You gonna say something, John? No. Um, so um, we're at nine minutes. Okay, let's let's. Uh, if you would, on your if you, in your little catechism, the actual small one, the navy blue one, the the a lot of the detail, the minutia. I put on your handout the bold part in the middle on um, catechism page sixteen or page one twenty eight. So I want you to ultimately to turn to page sixteen. But flip over to 128 just for a second. You can see, just for your own perusal this evening, the, the back of this is not Luther. It is, it's basically the, the doctors of the, the Lutheran church, kind of, and pastors all together, kind of taking common questions from their parishioners. Here's the classic questions people always ask. And they've categorized them into certain themes and a lot of fall into... The first article, like angels, I mean, today with um, me mentioning St. Michael and all angels, angels is addressed in there as one of the things that God creates and, and it fleshes out more about um, heaven and um, um, evolutionism and on and on it can go. So we don't, want to, we don't have time to treat all of those things individually today because my goal is to cover the entire first article today. So... If you would flip back to 16, look at page 128 maybe this evening or another day this week and come back with with questions on the first article. But it's mostly just meant to be as as a reference for you when you have certain questions. But the catechism on page 16, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's simply it. That's all we say about God the Father, that he is almighty. That means no one else is mightier than him. He is fully God, all-powerful, almighty, and that, rate, that brings some problems up. 
which I'll address hopefully later. Oh, I just hit it now. If he's almighty and he loves me, why do people get cancer? If he's almighty and he loves me, why do I have to suffer? Right? So all, right away we run into this problem with the almightiness of God. So I'm going to address that question. And then also maker of heaven and earth. So God as creator. So God speaks all things into existence and continues to sustain them, both the things that we see and the things that we don't. So uh, let's get into the, the, the meaning here. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He's given me the body that I have. He's made me who I am and, all, and, 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 and put me in the family that I have. My, so think, get this, like, so if he's given me my body, God has determined that I am not gonna play NBA basketball, Right? Um, he's also determined that I'm not going to invent the next like, Apple computer competitor, right? Because my reason, my brain. He's given, he's given each of us different uniqueness. He's given, um, like John here is telling me, trying to describe to me how, yeah, like I can play the guitar because it's mathematical. You can see it, like he sees numbers. He sees the music as numbers and it all kind of clicks together in his head because he's a physicist. And I think, you're crazy. <laughs> no, no, I think, I, I just don't, I can't, I sit down at the piano and I immediately get frustrated. I can't get my hands to do other one. I just don't get it, right? Because we all have different brains. So you sit down with people in this, in this room, you say, some of you probably drawn to mathematics. I just really like math. I've always liked math or whatever. Um, others just say, I just, I despise math. I've never understood it. I'm more of an English person. I love art or whatever. Um, the book, that terrible book, The Five Love Languages, I'll tell you why it's terrible another time, but at least it gets this idea that we are, we do all kind of express maybe our love for things in different ways because we're all different and we have our own individuality and uniqueness. We blame God for that. It changes the way I teach, frankly, like when I'm teaching kids, because I recognize that this kid over here who's not paying attention to me and is being, uh, being like really disruptive and so forth and never turns into stuff on time, you know why that is? And I get mad at him, but... So it could be a variety of things, but maybe he never turns this stuff on time because he goes home and the parents that God gave him are like neglectful or abusive or whatever it is, or they're not on top of him to finish his work as much as this kid over here who's always on time, 100 on everything, because his parents are diehard. Or maybe this kid just gets it because his brain's like a sponge. This kid's brain's not like a sponge. Maybe he's just interested in other things. He's always got a curious mind. He's asking good questions. So his, main, his mind's kind of wandering, thinking about different things. But we're able to see this as, yes, we want to be disciplined, but we also can recognize that um, th just because this kid's not making 100 on his math test um, doesn't mean he's is some kind of a failure. It means God gave him a brain that's maybe interested in something else. That doesn't mean he shouldn't do his homework. It just means I shouldn't like, expect him to be a physicist when he grows up, right? Not necessarily. He's given me all that, I am, all that I have, made me all that I am, and still takes care of them. He, 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 he created the world, and he continues to provide for the world and take care of it. He also, and he'll end it um, on the last day. So I don't get too worked up about, 
making sure that we don't destroy the environment. I mean, I, I, don't, I certainly don't want to hurt the environment because I don't know when God's going to come back and destroy the whole thing in fire. But he is going to come back and destroy the whole thing in fire and then recreate it perfectly. So I'm not, I'm not too worked up about making sure this world lives forever. But I also don't like driving down the street and seeing litter. So don't throw your styrofoam cup in the street. It just looks bad, right? That's more of a, that's more of a temporal view of this. And seeing the world as a gift that we're to be stewards of and take care of. Like it would be kind of cool to see some of these animals that are extinct that we just didn't mow down with machine guns, right? So like, but that's all, again, God's going to mow them all down with machine guns anyway in his own way. But we can be good stewards of creation for the time that we're here. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, or not. So he's given me the stuff that I have, the money that I have, the, the livelihood, the family that I have, or the, don't, the family that I don't have. This is the, the counsel given to families, like a, the husband longing for a wife uh, or, the, or the family longing for a, ch- a child and just saying, you know what? The Lord, the Lord gives these things as a gift. So we pray for them and he gives them in his time according to his wisdom. Land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger, guards and protects me from all evil. Why? Only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy. Not because of anything in me, but simply because he loves me and he's dead and he loves me. For all this, I thank and praise, serve and obey him. So it's this obedience and service, not to his oppressive master, but to this guy who's given me so much love that what else am I gonna do but but do what he tells me to do because he's only telling me to do things like don't run at the pool, you're going to fall and hit your head, right? All the Ten Commandments are don't hurt yourself and stop hurting other people. Instead, I love you, I'm, I'm giving you good stuff to do. So the first, the, first, uh, the first article of the Creed regarding the Father gets into this, the concept of creation. And we're at eight o'clock already, so let me just hit it really quick. Um, in contrast to evolutionism, today's, really driving a lot of what we see behind today's craziness is the doctrine of evolutionism, which would be that God is not the creator, but things evolve from chaos and continue to evolve over time. And the strong destroy the weak, survival of the fittest. So everything is in conflict, always pulling toward improvement. That's Marxism, by the way. And so we think about critical race theory, critical theory, and how we see there's always an oppressed group the, someone's oppressed because of race or sexual identification, gender, uh, whatever it is. Society is always trying to find an oppressed group, identify the oppressors, and try to make, make things equal or equitable, right? It's all coming out of Marxism, which comes out of evolutionism. That is survival of the fittest. Everything is in combat with each other. That there's not a creator who's actually created and sustained things but it's actually history is just pulling itself forward, evolving along as it goes. So when we look at a society that is completely devoid of morality or trying, to, totally lost on trying to come up with what is good and what is evil, how are we going to teach, like in the public schools, they're trying to like figure out, so we want to teach kids, or let me put it a different way. Why are we surprised when kids like commit suicide, all that right and left, and they have all these school shootings? What, what's the purpose of life? We've come out of chaos. We're headed towards chaos. Why bother living? So that's a suicide answer. But the murder, the, the killing other people and whatever it is, you can blame video games if you want, but really when we've raised them on this idea that they're survival of the fittest, I can take whatever I want. 
I can do whatever I want. And why would there be any kind of morality for you to say that it's wrong for me to go shoot whoever I want? Who told you that that's wrong? Wrong. So we're kind of, we have this morality expectation on, our, on this generation, but we've ripped from them any kind of basis for morality. So in contrast to that, God creates. He speaks things into existence. He says, let there be and there is. So God says stuff and it happens, which is handy for us because he also says things like, you're forgiven. And it happens. And then on the last day, he'll say, just like he said to Lazarus, Lazarus, get up. Lazarus, rise. He'll say to us, get up, rise. So he, his word does stuff. Um, ah, I know you guys got kids at home. Um, I, I tell you what, let me, uh, let me hit one more thing. I'm gonna, cause I brought up the suffering bit and I'll, and I'll finish the first article next week. I don't want to have to talk as much about creeds in general. So we'll finish the first, first article, the whole back of your handout, uh, next week. And, um, and then get into the second article. But the one, the one thing regarding suffering is, if God is almighty, why suffering? And that's actually in the back, if you flip over to the back at the very bottom, since I brought it up, I need to address it. Christian views of suffering, Christian view of suffering, if God's almighty, then why is there evil? Well, uh, to put it simply, God sent his son Jesus into this world precisely because the world has fallen and full of sin. So our, if our expectation of God is that he's supposed to come and take away all my problems, that's us trying to forcing on God what we think he should be, what he, sh- what he should be doing. But he has said to us, I love you in this way. God, this is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not bear shall have eternal life. God so loved there is not God really, really, really loved. That so is actually God loved in this way. That's the Greek. God loved the world in this way, by, by doing this. He gave his only son. So now when I think, if God is almighty and all loving, how does God love me? Well, I would like for him to take away all my problems. And well, Frank, he, he does. He just does it in his way and in his time. So for me to be, for, for Jesus to come into this world and die for my sins removes death from me eternally. And so I still have a few of these temporal mosquitoes that bother me, namely suffering and death on this side of heaven, but ultimately it's a blip. Right? So God's taking care of the problem. So this is, this is how we understand God's love. So rather than me saying, okay, if God is almighty and God is all loving and all powerful, why doesn't he take away all my problems? Well, that's trying to force our definition of God, treating him like a vending machine. Instead, he says, I love you. And this is how you know that I love you. Jesus died. I sent Jesus to die for you. And these problems will not be eternal. So now when I, when I face suffering now, because we will, Ultimately, we know we're going to die, right? So everyone, to be sure, suffers different ways and, and, and throughout their life and so forth. But ultimately, unless Jesus comes back, we face the problem of death. And in the face of death, we're like, ah, how is God, where's God's love in this? Well, no, no, I know God loves me because Jesus died. So now this suffering has been transformed to the way out of here, right? Um, and really, when you think about how, how does God solve all the problems, the, the, biggest, the biggest act of love that Jesus does is precisely suffering, his suffering for us, which then transforms the way that we see our own suffering. So we kind of, in our own suffering, we're given a glimpse of our Lord Jesus. So that's one way of just reminding ourselves that in the face of suffering, 
We are tempted to think that God doesn't love us, but in fact, we know that he does. And he's with us in the midst of our suffering. Remember, he named us in holy baptism. He promised to be with us always. And in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is this, that God is always working things out in what he knows to be best, not what we think to be best. So it might very well be this, this, ter- this terrible hurricane that, that he has allowed to hit Florida will in, fact, will, will in fact be a way that he chooses to call a certain amount of people to himself. Um, and, that's, and that's hard for us to, oh, how, why would he do that? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Same with any way that any of us go through death. So he actually can take evil and use it for good. So the devil has evil purposes. Luther had said in the bondage of the will, uh, the, devil, the devil is ultimately God's devil. So the devil gets all these bad ideas of what he wants to destroy us. And then God spends all of his time working out ways to make that plan ultimately serve toward our good. So we'll talk more about the devil and angels next week, as well as um, human value and letter E. Sorry, I overly ambitious, got too wrapped up in the creeks, doggone it, never put it on a handout, just shows my failure. Let's close, let's, in fact, let's stand, we'll say the, uh, the Lord's Prayer together. And in case you're curious, if you flip to the, in your hymnal there in front of you, if you still got that handy, the front inside cover has got a bunch of quick little prayers you can use during worship, and the back inside cover has the creeds, and also the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks, guys. Sorry I went a little late. We'll, we'll pick up where we left off on the, a little bit more on the first article and then jump in the second article next week. Thank you very much. Oh, Saturday, Oktoberfest. If, you wanna, if you're looking for a way to get to know more people at church, I got a, Oktoberfest, a Marzen Oktoberfest and an IPA that I did. I think we did like six different kegs of homebrew coming, lots of bratwurst. Lots of calories for free. So come in, grab some calories, grab a guitar, bring your guitar. We'll give you a microphone, piano. Did you record? I did.